Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. On this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Lippy Roy. She's a doctor, a writer, an international speaker, media personality, and host of the YouTube series, Health, Humor, and Harmony. As an MSNBC and NBC medical contributor, you may have seen Dr. Roy on one of her over 300 appearances discussing all health aspects of COVID-19. She's also a national addiction expert and founder of CETA Med. It's an organization that partners with businesses, leaders, and HR departments to deal with addiction and mental health issues in the workforce. Dr. Roy goes beyond well-being and educates the workforce on how to create cultures rooted in strength, mindfulness, empathy, and delight using evidence-based strategies. Call me selfish, but as a former HR lady, I had to ask Lippy one important question. Is wine ever healthy? So if you want to hear the answer and really get into a discussion about the world of work and alcohol, we'll sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Lippy Roy on Corporate Drinker. Well, hello, Dr. Lippy Roy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lori. It's so good to be here. Yeah, I'm so pleased to have you. Listen, we have a wonderful mutual friend and we could talk about that in a little bit. But before we get started, Lippy, can you please tell me who you are and what you're all about? Well, uh, so nice to be here, Lori. My name is Lippy Roy. I am a Torontonian born and bred. Go Leafs go. <laughs> but I, I now live here in New York City, where I live and work. Uh, I'm, an, I'm trained as an internal medicine doctor, and I subspecialized in addiction medicine. And I kind of fell into this by accident when I was a former primary care doctor to Boston's homeless population. About a year and a half into the job, we discovered that the leading cause of death amongst Boston's homeless population was drug overdose. And this is back in 2013, when we didn't see daily headlines of heroin and fentanyl and Oxycontin. And so that information on mortality data completely transformed the way that I provided care. I got trained in addiction medicine. I did a lot of listening to substance use counselors and psychologists, but most importantly, to my patients. And so, and it just it really opened my eyes. I've been fortunate to go through, you know, get amazing training in medical school at Tulane and residency programs at Duke, but they really don't teach doctors about addiction and substance use disorders. They teach you a little bit about pain management. They teach you about mental illness, but anyway, so I moved to New York in 2016, where I was the former chief of addiction medicine for Rikers Island Jail. Never a dull day on that job. <laughs> And uh, and everything I knew about Rikers, I tell us in all my presentations, I learned from years and years and years of watching Law and Order. Oh, <laughs> so, right. 
steep learning curve, let me tell you. But and then and then I, I did that. And then I worked for New York State Addiction Agency Oasis as a medical director at a Brooklyn-based addiction treatment center. And then when COVID happened, I, I but before that I was speaking, I was invited to speak all over the country and other countries at the intersection of addiction, incarceration, homeless health, mental health, pain, trauma, burnout. These are all such many ways universal topics, but they're so stigmatized, people just don't talk about it. And and so, uh, and then at the start of COVID, I became a medical director of COVID isolation quarantine sites for Housing Works, and I did a lot of media appearances as an MSNBC and NBC News medical contributor, talking all things COVID. I write for Forbes about health, and I do a lot of speaking consulting just to share what I know with as many people as possible. And just a month ago, I launched my company, Cita Med, which is about really a speaking company about addiction, health, empathy, and uh, I'm very excited. Well, I'm very excited for you too. And I'm just so impressed with all of these accomplishments, but I know that high driving, high performing people are fueled by stories of origin. So why do you, why do you do what you do? That's such a wonderful uh, and meaningful question. I'm glad you asked that. I do what I do because I, I found that I'm truly passionate about connecting with people. Working in the field of medicine has been such a privilege uh, just to learn what I've learned, whether it be about diabetes or lupus or prostate cancer, you name it, addiction, mental illness, to be able to learn these really specific specialized topics that are so universal. And then to be able to sit down one-on-one -on -one with a patient and then work together to solve their problem. It is deeply empowering to the patient and it, it really helps me and gives me a sense of fulfillment. And now I'm trying to share what I know, especially the very specialized things that I know with as many people as possible. It is incredibly enriching to be able to see how people's lives get transformed. And it helps me as much as it helps them. I bet. I bet. You know, I think there are very few of us in this world who haven't been touched by addiction or substance abuse disorder in our individual lives or through six degrees of separation. So how has that world touched your world? I mean, you're 100% right, by the way. Everybody knows somebody with some type of an addiction, whether it be to a substance like cigarettes. Maybe everyone may not know somebody with a cocaine addiction, but I promise you, everyone knows somebody who smokes too much, maybe drinks alcohol too much. And then there's behavioral addictions like gambling, these devices, technology, television, food. There's all forms of addiction. The problem is, though, that most people still think of addiction as a moral failing, as a moral weakness, when I, I now know that it is actually a chronic medical condition, a, a disease of the brain. But the good news, Lori, is that most people with addiction, once connected to the appropriate treatment and care, get better. But most people just don't know that. No, they struggle for sure in understanding the complexities of addiction. So I want to go back to that question, because many of us have relatives, we have colleagues who we've witnessed go down a rabbit hole, right, of addiction. Have you had that experience in your life? 
yeah, much like all of my patients and most people that I know in my own family, um, when I was a teenager, we would use, we used to go to England. And one of my uncles there, he was just the life of the party. He was so social, friendly, bringing people food and drinks. I discovered years later, actually, when he died, that he had a severe drinking problem. And again, at the time, I'm like, I didn't know that it was something chronic, a health problem. But my cousin found him dead. And um, and you know what, Lori? He never got help. He never acknowledged that he even had a problem. And unfortunately, that is far too common. And uh, and then, of course, I now know so many other people, uh, sadly, who've died, personal friends, colleagues, um, and who are actively struggling or experiencing addiction. And of course, through my patients, uh, there's far too many people, and they're just not getting the help they need and deserve, Lori. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, I'm really curious about this intersection of work and alcohol, as you know, and so many people in my professional corporate life think that wine is healthy for you. So I want to start right there. Can you tell us uh, with some truth, with some data, is wine good for you? I'm so glad you start there and and you're giving me the opportunity to share some of the science. So let me just reinforce to your listeners I get it. I get that the science can be confusing, right? Look what happened during COVID, right? There's always, every day we got new science about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the vaccines, what medications work. It's it's confusing for us as scientists and doctors, let alone the public. And look, there was data that came out showing that wine, particularly red wine, can be heart healthy. It can actually provide health benefits. And so the recommendation was, you know, you could have maybe one or two glasses of wine and it would be healthy for you. However, the World Health Organization just really released, and there have been other uh, data sources as well, but the WHO revealed that there is actually, in fact, no amount of alcohol that actually is healthy. Every small amount, and for each individual, it varies, the amount, uh, any amount of alcohol can actually have adverse health consequences. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. And I've seen the reporting on that. I think a lot of people either don't believe it or think it's not the complete picture or maybe just think, well, sure, it's not healthy, but I'm not going to develop an addiction to the substance. So I wonder if we can talk about that because I wonder how many people truly find themselves addicted to alcohol and is the fact that it's not healthy really important for the rest of the population? Do you know what I'm asking? I know exactly what you're asking. Um, and then correct me if I'm wrong, but but you're absolutely right in that the vast majority of people who use substances, uh, whether it be cigarettes, whether it be alcohol, whether it be heroin, believe it or not, most people who use drugs do so recreationally and they will never go on to develop an addiction. Same thing, like I I don't drink alcohol, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I do, I love, I do other things that are not healthy. I love donuts and peanut butter. I Right now I have like a little container of chocolate chips that I'm eating with my, my apple slices. But I, and I joke that I'm, oh, I'm like, oh my God, I love chocolate so much. I'm addicted to chocolate. A lot of people use that in lay terminology. But, but the truth is, as an addiction doctor, I can tell you that 
addiction is something very different from just recreational use. Like I recreationally eat chocolate, um, eat cake, tiramisu, dessert. Um, most people recreationally or socially drink alcohol and they don't develop an addiction. An addiction or a substance use disorder by definition is any type of consumption or behavior that adversely affects your day-to-day -day life and you know activities of daily living. So for instance, if you're say let's just use alcohol because that's what this topic is about. If you are consuming alcohol to the point where you're wait, late for work, you forget to pick up your kids from school, you miss that deadline, you're being really abrupt or rude to your family, you're having uh, abnormal relationships with your friends and family, that is use or alcohol consumption that's then adversely affecting your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I do want to get back to this idea that maybe there's a fine line that we can draw or a thicker line between recreational use, maybe misuse and dependency, because there are so many individuals who on any given week would have nothing to drink, but then they travel for work, right? They may go to a conference and it's every time they go out for work, every time they go out for a conference, they find themselves drinking too much because of the environment, maybe to cope with their anxiety, right? So when when does that spectrum start to separate between like, uh, you know, just overuse, misuse and dependence? Can you tease that out for me a little bit? Yeah, no, that's, that's such a really good nuanced kind of way of asking it. So what you described, like, let's use that example of, um, of, of people who maybe drinks under certain situations, whether it be going away at a conference and everyone's kind of partying and drinking. I like to use a example that I know you know very well, which is happy hour, right? Right after work, right? Every day after work. That's it's just so common. It's expected almost, right? And then we can talk more broadly about how alcohol, you know, it's so socially acceptable, which is another major reason why it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem, particularly among women. And we can talk about that. But there's something called binge drinking. So these are people, they're not drinking necessarily every single day, but they will drink heavily on the weekends, or they'll drink really heavily or not even at risk, but really risky drinking or harmful drinking, I should say, at certain periods. And there's actually defined a, a real def definition for what binge drinking is, but that's really roughly what it is. And People who do that are definitely at risk, health risk and um, environmental social risks, drunk driving and all these other adverse um, consequences from harmful drinking. Dependence, dependence is really what that means. Physical dependence means that you're drinking to the level where if you stop drinking, you you develop those symptoms, those withdrawal symptoms. And that's really the leading to towards uh, addiction. It means that you're it's uh, risky drinking and you you should probably seek help. Yeah. And then addiction at the other at the end of that extreme, at the end of that spectrum, as you mentioned, is when those behaviors, those choices start to interfere with your day in, day out obligations, correct? Exactly. It's when it adversely affects your day-to-day -day living. I, I I love chocolate, but am I eating chocolate to the point where I can't pay my bills and I can't have a normal conversation? Do you know what I mean? But either you or you know somebody who's got those behaviors, you can see it. You really can. The problem is, though, Gloria, is that most people, most lay people who don't have the training experience that say you and I have, they just don't know how to help that person. But I guess 
you though, if that person had leukemia or if they had thyroid problems or vision problems, they would know how to get help and they would, would even hesitate to get that person help, right? But if it's a problem that they're drinking or heroin or smoking, like, oh, you don't talk about it, right? Well, thank you for taking me through those steps because I think it does set us up for the next part of the conversation, which is really about work drinking. And you touched on this earlier around the default assumption that when colleagues and teams get together, we do so around alcohol. And, you know, there have been a lot of conversations about self-leadership, taking yourself out of that situation, and also around regular leadership where you don't put your workforce in a position to make those choices. So can you talk a little bit about both because if you're already genetically maybe predisposed to not deal with alcohol well, there maybe is no amount of self-leadership that can prepare you for some of the choices that you need to make around alcohol, correct? I mean, this is such an important topic. I'm so glad you asked this specifically this way. So let me take a step back because you were pretty much alluding to basically what are the risk factors for developing, you know, alcoholism, which is or as alcohol use disorder. Not everyone develops it, right? We just talked about that. In fact, the percentage is so low. It's anywhere from like one to maybe it varies one to maybe 5% of people who use whatever substance go on to develop addiction. So what separates that person from the person that doesn't. You mentioned one word already, the G word, genetics. Genetics plays a big role. It can. So studies show that, say, a father who has an alcohol use disorder, their son, their child has a 50% likelihood of developing addiction. But look at the other 50%. The other 50% is environment. So if you grow up in a, in a supportive environment, loving family, job, education, friends, you those are considered protective factors. Other So genetics... The other big risk factor actually is stress. You and I have worked in very like high stress environments. And if we work in an environment where we are not controlling that stress and that tension, if we are not, if it's not being addressed in healthy ways, if we're not being surrounded by supportive, say, leaders and bosses or family at home, it can increase your risk of developing uh, addiction. So we talked about genetics. And then also in the early age, studies show um, that if for people who that start drinking before age 15 are three times as likely to report having an alcohol addiction in the past year compared to those who waited until age 21 or later to start drinking. And by the way, the, the risk for females in this age group is even worse than males. And we can talk about why that, why that is. Yeah. So I'm curious start- about, I'm curious about that because you alluded earlier to the fact that women have a specific risk set, right? There, there are specific issues around being a woman and interacting with alcohol. So can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, And this is something that's very, very important to me to address because women's health needs are very unique. We have unique challenges. We have unique biology. But socially, as you know, women are socialized differently. And all of this ties back to to alcohol. And let me just take a step back and remind people, you know, we've been seeing a lot of headlines about opioids. Understandably, it it can cause respiratory depression and kill fast. But alcohol actually kills more people than opioids. And by the way, tobacco kills more people than alcohol and opioids combined. The difference is partly alcohol and tobacco are socially acceptable and they're also legal. But let's go back to women. There's recent data that reveals that the rate of alcohol-related deaths is actually increasing faster among women versus men. So why is that? 
the increase in there's just frankly increased alcohol consumption uh, among women. It's it's more considered socially acceptable for women to drink. There's an increase in high risk drinking, and as an example, like binge drinking, for instance, and an increase in alcohol use disorder or alcoholism amongst women. And we have to also remember. I remember I was talking about biology. Women generally have higher uh, percentage of body fat and a lower percentage of body water compared to men. And that increases their blood alcohol concentration, which then leads to a higher risk of complications or alcohol related complications. Wow, I had no idea. I wonder if we could also talk about the role of COVID in some of these rising numbers. You know, many of us were working from home, we were socially isolating, spending time away from our loved ones and our extended family members. So, what's the role in COVID in driving up some of these numbers? Oh my God. Uh, so in a lot of my presentations, talks, I've been doing a lot of talks talking about the colliding epidemics of COVID and drug overdose, alcoholism. And so why, why is that? We actually saw, if you look at the data, drug overdose. And when we talk about drug overdose, let's be really clear. It's actually polysubstance. It also includes a lot of alcohol uh, consumption there too. But drugs, drug use and overdose specifically skyrocketed during the pandemic. Alcohol consumption and particularly among women increased during the pandemic. Why is that? Well, what happened during COVID? We had unprecedented, we had shutdown, lockdown, which resulted in isolation, um, uh, unprecedented unemployment, schools were closed. Mostly it was women that then had to leave work to take care of their kids at home. Women are still the primary caregivers of elderly parents and relatives. So a lot of that happened. And we also know, so none of this really surprised me, this rise in drug use and overdose, depression, anxiety, and other stress-related disorders because we know that isolation, uh, stress, unemployment, all these things are risk factors for substance use and addiction. So, not, and by the way, that is a risk factor, mental health conditions and a history of trauma, depression, PTSD, ADHD, these are all risk factors for, for addiction, Lori. Well, I'm thinking a little bit about the role of the employer, of the organization, because so much of what you've described around these risk factors, around the genetic factors, have nothing to do with the workplace. And yet we spend 8, 10, 12 hours a day at work, sometimes in these really terribly stressful, very conflict-driven organizations or just businesses that are trying to solve big problems and demand a lot from their workforce. So what can employers do to help with the epidemic around alcohol use and some of these unprecedented numbers around death and addiction? And what's really not an employer's role? I'm curious about that. Yeah, I really important questions. I, I mean, the part of me kind of wishes that we didn't have such a broken healthcare system, first of all. You know, and I'm saying this as a doctor who's been trained here in the United States. But I'm also Canadian, so I also have an idea and I've traveled the world. I've seen how healthcare works and doesn't work. And um, it's unfortunate that we just don't have universal healthcare and healthcare is tied to employment. Now that said, I do believe that employers have a responsibility. And look, uh, let's be really blunt. Say an example in the, in the corporate world or in the finance world where these high level executives, their bottom line is their shares. It's getting, it's maximizing profits. I get that. I'm not judging that. I get that. But I'm also a doctor and I know the data and the data clearly shows that tw at least 20% of the workforce 
irrespective of, and that's just average because it's higher depending on the sector, uh, like financial sector and other high stress environments, at least 20% of that workforce is underperforming because they have health conditions, health conditions that are being under addressed or poorly addressed or just not addressed at all. And addiction and mental health are probably two of the leading causes of underperformance. And as a result, it's going to lead to poor productivity and outcomes, financial outcomes for that that organization, Lori. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, I never thought about the correlation between the individual performance, the performance of the overall organization, and the physical health of the workforce, right? We always think that somebody may have a moral issue and be lacking in like drive or ambition, or they're not focused, right? But 20% is a huge number to attribute to performance. And I, I just wonder, is it an expansion of healthcare benefits? Is it really restructuring the company to get more you know, relief for these workers? Or is it about work-life balance? Do you have any ideas here on how to address this? Yeah. So uh, you brought up some really great ideas, actually. It's a little combination of kind of all of those things. I think the first, first and foremost, is that it's it needs to be an acknowledgement from leadership. If you are a truly a good leader, you recognize that your number one asset is your employees. It's your staff. Without your staff, you don't have a company and you don't have products. So good leaders recognize that. So then then take the next step. But, you know, create a program and that involves people like me bringing in people like me who understand what the health problems are and then how to get them help. Look, if half your workforce, let's say 20% of your workforce had leukemia, you would want to get them help. You would want to connect them to an oncologist, nutritionist, a radiation oncologist, whatever. But if 20% of your workforce has at-risk drinking or alcoholism, uh, and as a result, by the way, it results in absenteeism, or staff have relatives or family members or spouses or children who have these uh, addiction problems, and they are, as a result, having to leave work and take care of them, or they're depressed, they're anxious. So if you are creating a system, an organized system to address these problems with your staff, you are not getting the performance that you need. It, it just needs to be addressed. So bringing in um, uh, uh, experts like, like me, doctors who know, understand, this and know how to get them help, medications, counseling, where to go. I know the resources, but you, these organizations, their HR departments, diversity, inclusion, they all need to work together to, to make sure staff are getting the help they need and, and deserve. You know, Lippy, we've talked a lot about like risk factors and individuals who may be primed for addiction, but there's light at the end of the tunnel, correct? So can we talk a little bit about the treatment, the protocols that are available right now, like some traditional and maybe some like leading edge? I'm so glad you're asking about treatment because I want people to know that there is hope. Uh, and unfortunately, something with alcoholism, people just don't think that there's any hope that you have to hit rock bottom. Not true. The good news is that you can get help. The first step I would ask is I'd say, recommend go to your doctor uh, and ask for help there. Uh, ask for a referral to an addiction specialist, to a counselor, a therapist. They can then put you on medications. There's medications like naltrexone, which is both a pill and even like a monthly injection. That's one idea. 
but getting behavioral health therapy, counseling that's led by a professional, that both the medications and therapy are can be extremely effective. And then in addition to that, mutual support groups like AA Alcoholics Anonymous combined with medications and behavioral-led therapies can be really helpful. I know so many people that are now in long-term recovery because they just had the courage to get help. So that would be my recommendation, Lori. Yeah, I'm really fascinated about this idea of naltrexone. I think when people know it, they think about it with opioids. Can you talk a little bit about how it works and how this class of drugs works with alcohol use disorder? Yeah, great question. And it can be a source of some confusion. So you're absolutely right in that naltrexone is actually FDA approved to be used for opioid use disorder or opioid addiction as well as alcohol use disorder. They are, it's, so naltrexone is actually an opioid blocker. So people may ask, well, then why is it helpful in alcohol? Because it's been shown uh, it can decrease uh, dopamine release and other factors, uh, neurotransmitters that are associated with um, alcoholism, alcohol use disorder. So naltrexone, it, it's, it can be effective. I, I don't want people to get the impression, oh, once I take this pill, my alcoholism will go away. It doesn't work that way. Remember, alcoholism and substance use disorders, it's a chronic health condition, right? So just as somebody didn't get addicted overnight, they're not going to get treated and cured overnight either. So it's going to be a long process. Talk to your doctor so they, they can continually reassess if you need to be on this medication, if they need to go up on the dose, if they need to change it to a different medication, like a Camprosate or Camprol, Disulfiram. And yes, there are other medications. There's a lot, a lot of research happening in this area, but therapies, counseling, these are all evidence-based therapies that can work, Lori. It's just that most people are not connected to this treatment. Did you know that less than 10%, like I think it's 8% of people with an alcohol addiction even get help. If 8% of my heart disease patients or diabetic patients got help, I would probably lose my medical license. Yeah, yeah, that makes we sense. Really, we need to work hard to make sure people are getting evidence-based treatment. It's available. We do. I also think there's these confusing stories in the media around the treatments available for, you know, alcohol use disorder. And one of them I'm thinking about is semaglutide that's come up recently in the news. You know, people think that taking Wagovi, Ozempic, Monjaro, all of these new drugs out there will cure them of all sorts of behavioral <laughs> issues, right? And and I wonder if there is a use case for alcohol use disorder and have you seen any evidence that it's been successful? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because unfortunately what often happens, and yes, I, even though I, I work in media, media can also be a, a you know perpetrator of these problems uh, and misinformation. You, you use the example of Ozempic and people are now using it for weight loss, especially in certain say, entertainment modeling industries. So I caution against that. And the reason is because these medications that are out there on the market that are now FDA approved, they've gone through rigorous research for specific clinical indications. So in the case of Ozempic, it was for diabetes. It's for like, uh, sorry, like, uh, like uh, uh, you know, for specific clinical ind indications. But when we veer away from that, it can become a real problem. And so we, I, I caution people not to do that if they have questions just talk to your, talk to your doctor about it. So, um, you know, yeah, like, so I mean, I, I'm, I'm asking because I read a wonderful New York times story about a use case for alcohol use disorder and Ozempic. And I thought, 
okay, I, I wonder if that's going to be a question that's starting to pop up in doctor's offices. Are people asking about it? And again, to your earlier and interesting point, it's not like you're going to take an injection or take a pill and then your feelings around alcohol just completely disappear, right? This is a process. You need a continuum of care. You also need to be in the hands of addiction specialists, right? And experts to help you along this journey. Yeah, well, you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we need to we need a lot more research on the connection between Ozempic and alcohol alcohol use disorder. Um, but right now, it is it's by no means uh, any kind of an FDA approved medication for it. It's not even off label use. So we just just I, I ask people to wait for the research. If they have questions, by all means, ask your doctor, ask a specialist, uh, and get the information that you you need to answer your questions. But we already have treatments out there. We just need people to access those treatments. I know already that you've worked with some really great and esteemed HR professionals to kind of get on the right track. And we share a mutual friend. His name is Ron Thomas. And that's where I got to know you and your work. I mean, beyond watching you on TV. And I just wonder, how does an HR department or a leader, you know, someone on a board work with an executive medical professional like you to really start to think about wellness and well-being in the workplace? I'm so glad you're asking that, Lori. Here's how I look at it. Somebody who works in corporate human resources, they have expertise and experiences that I don't have. Somebody like me who's trained in internal medicine, addiction, mental health, speaking, teaching, I have skills that they don't have. The way I would start this is having a conversation, right? The last, the worst thing that I can do is assume, oh, the Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley's and the, they're all the same, right? Or, and the fashion industry and the aviation, they're all the same. That is absolutely not true. Everyone has a corporate culture. Everyone has staff that have unique needs. So what my approach would be, have a conversation for me to have a conversation with, say, a CHRO and, and for me to understand what have you identified? What are you hearing from your staff? And then what I would do is I actually have a survey that I would send, give to the HR person, say, hey, send, can you send this to your staff? And you know, I would ask questions that are you know, related to mental health and addiction, risky behaviors. And then based on those responses, Lori, I would tailor my training, my workshop, or even just a general talk based on what the responses are from that staff at that particular course. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It sounds like something that is an easy win for a lot of human resources departments to reach out and have that conversation and get the wheels turning to think about how do we really shore up well-being in our workforce? I, I love the work that you're doing. I'm so proud to know you. And listen, if people want to get to know more about your history, your work, your training, I'm sure you have a wonderful website. Where should we send them? Oh, thank you, Lori. I, I, I'm so glad that Ron introduced us. You are just, uh, just a, a golden human being. Um, my, I love what I do, and I love sharing what I do. So people can first of all find me on my on my website, citamedllc.com. So that's S-I-T-A-M-E-D-L-L-C.com. I also have a YouTube show which you can link through my my website, but it's also just on YouTube, Health, Humor, and Harmony uh, with Dr. Roy. I talk about all sorts of topics and what the episode so just went out today at three o'clock uh, on National Grief Awareness Month. And uh, I'm also very active on, on Twitter at Lippy Roy, on TikTok and Instagram at Lippy Roy MD. Amazing. Well, thanks again for being a guest today. It's been my pleasure to host your big ideas on Corporate Drinker. Thank you, Lori. Have a wonderful day. It was all my pleasure. Thank you. 
The Corporate Drinker Podcast is a special series brought to you by Punk Rock HR. If you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite streaming platform and leave a five-star rating and a review. You can also head on over to punkrockhr.com for news, information, show notes, and all the good stuff related to Corporate Drinker. This episode was expertly produced and edited by my friends at Emerald City Productions with special help from Danny and Michael. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Corporate Drinker Podcast.